Oh, it is going to be good this morning. <laughs> I love it. I love it when, when every now and then you crawl into bed at night and um, uh, I, I won't give you too many details, but I have a breathing machine which I have to strap to my face at night. So I crawl in, strap the machine to my face, switch it all on. It all starts doing its, its thing. And then the Lord says, Bob, have you thought about this? <laughs> and I go, Lord, it's 11.30. I just want to fall asleep, please. He says, really? Well, what about this? I'm like, okay, I'll get up. And then I, uh, I was chatting with Anthea this morning. She said, Bob, what time did you come back to bed? I said, I think it was about 10 past 12. Um, and I looked at my notes. I said, oh, you know, I just needed to jot a few things down. I wrote two pages of notes. It's fantastic. So we're not going to go through all of that this morning. But, oh, my goodness, Gethsemane, we have arrived. John chapter 18. Open your Bible up. We're going to read it together. We're going to get to all four Gospels this morning. We're going to have a look at Matthew and Mark and Luke as well. Because as we come into this period of Christmas, I don't think it's accidental that we've wound up at this particular point in Scripture. So we're going to read through John, and then I don't have the words up here on the screen for us to have a look at Matthew and Mark and Luke. You're going to need a Bible open in front of you, or you're going to need to be sitting next to someone that does. Well, let's read together the words from John chapter 18. We're going to read about the first 14 verses here. John chapter 18, verse 1. This is after Jesus has finished praying in this in-between space of John chapter 17. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. We'll talk about that. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, Roman soldiers, religious police. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back, literally they went backwards and fell to the ground. Don't know if you ever noticed that in your Bible before. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said, Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Which ear? His right ear. What a fascinating observation. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John chapter 18 verse 1 begins with them finishing praying and then they crossed the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley um, is referred to by some commentators like Lightfoot as the sewer of Jerusalem. It has a stream that runs through it mm, some of the time. When snow is melting, it can get even up to seven feet wide. Massive raging torrent, seven feet wide. That makes it about half the width of the mill drain down the back of the swamp. It is not a massive valley, but it's a dumping ground. Uh, that's where they would throw the offal of animals which they weren't going to eat. That's where they would throw the remains of sacrifices. There was a public graveyard in the Kidron Valley. And so they crossed over out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and on the other side there was a garden. And then John in his account goes straight into Jesus being arrested. So what are some things that we know happen that we don't find here in John's account? He prayed. Yeah, Jesus prays at some point. What are some other things that happen? The disciples fall asleep. That's something else that happens that's not in John's account. John doesn't mention these things. What else happens? Give a hint. Judas turns up to kiss Jesus. John leaves that out of his account. So turn with me. It's not that funny. Turn with me back to Matthew. All right? And we are going to be in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and we're going to read from verse 36. And we're going to have a look at the other details that Matthew includes. Now remember, Matthew, like John, is one of the disciples. But Matthew goes back and Matthew deliberately writes for a Jewish audience. So there are specific details that we're going to find in Matthew which would make a lot of sense to a, a Jewish person which may not be on John's agenda as he writes. Matthew chapter 26 verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. John says that Jesus goes to a garden and does not name it. Here, Matthew says that Jesus goes with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, hear what's going on for Jesus here. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If it is possible for sorrow to kill someone, it would have killed Jesus here. That's what Jesus is saying. He is that overwhelmed. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that 
you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Hear what Jesus is wrestling with here. Verse 43, when he came back, again he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Remember, this is after the Passover feast. This is after they have sat and they have eaten together and they have shared drinks with each other. They have gone for a walk. Jesus has prayed. They've crossed out of Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley and now they are falling asleep. It is very, very late at night. Verse 44, so he left them. He didn't wake them up. He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Verse 45, then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that's how Matthew calls him, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. And I want you to, to keep in your mind as we read these accounts that we have been previously told by John that when Judas took the bread from Jesus and dipped it in the cup at the Last Supper, Satan entered him. Keep that in mind that this is not just Judas acting on his own. This is Judas in whom is Satan, according to Scripture. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, Matthew doesn't name them, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, this is to everyone else, am I leading a rebellion? that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Skip over with me to Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel. Because Mark gives a slightly different view than Matthew and John. I'll give you a hint. After this, we might even read Luke. Mark chapter 14. We'll start reading at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Again, John has said they went to a garden, and both Matthew and Mark say they go to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, or Daddy, Father, he said. It's a very intimate term. 
everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. They did not know what to say to him. That's a fascinating observation from the perspective of the disciples. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 51, this is actually important. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The importance of that we will get to. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're going to start reading at verse 39. Luke says this, Jesus went out as usual, as usual to the Mount of Olives. That is Luke's description of where Jesus and the disciples go. As usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him on reaching the place He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted, from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Again, different perspective. Who was standing where when that event happened and who saw what moment? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Someone actually asked a question, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Again, we've only had this observation from John so far. But Jesus answered, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, but you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness 
reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. This is a Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is an olive press. Well, this is half a Gethsemane. Often we talk about the garden of Gethsemane. When we look at the scriptures, one New Testament author says they went to a garden. One New Testament author says they went to a place called Gethsemane. Well, two New Testament authors. And one New Testament author says they went to the Mount of Olives. See, the Mount of Olives is covered in trees. It was a massive olive grove. The trees that are there today are around about a 1,000 years old. But it was a thriving olive grove, and there were Gethsemanes all over the place. There were olive presses all over the, pro- all over the place. Who here has ever seen um, grapes being pressed? Has anyone here ever pressed grapes before? Well, they put them in a massive barrel and you jump around on top of them. I learned a whole lot about olives and grapes this week. The reason that they press grapes with the feet is because you don't want to crush the seed of the grape. Because if you crush the seed of the grape, it turns the grape juice or the wine bitter. With olives, you don't have that problem. If you actually want to get the olive oil out, you have to crush them, first of all, because they're incredibly hard. And after you crush them, here is one that they have an animal uh, attached to. You crush them and you turn them into a paste. And then what would happen is you would assemble them in baskets and stack the baskets up, and then a beam would be laid across the top of the baskets. Often cut into the rock would be places where the oil that comes out would be collected. And the first and most easy oil that that comes out of the olives is the oil that is given to the temple as the first fruits or as the offering. And that would be used for lighting the menorah or the candles in the temple. It would be used for worship. It would also be used for anointing people with oil. The second oil which came out is the oil that you yourself would take home. You would use it for cooking in your house. Um, You would use it as lotion or as a salve, same as we might have Savlon today. They would put olive oil on it. And the last and most difficult oil that came out, where you really had to hang extra pieces of stone across this stuff, is the oil that you would put in, in a device that looked a little bit like a teapot. You'd put a wick down the spout and you would light it. And that's how you would light your home. That is how an oil press functioned. This is the other half of a Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is an oil press. And that's kind of what it looks like for real. And you can see this spot here, this part here, where you would then collect the oil that was running out. Now, Jesus and his disciples have gone to a place that was regular for them to go to. As usual, the scriptures say. John tells us that when Judas turns up, Judas knew the place. Have a look here at the language here. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden. Judas came, Judas came and brought these people basically to the place where Jesus runs his small group, where they would gather together. It would be an intimate teaching space. We have every reason to believe that some of this stuff would have been sitting around. This is the Mount of Olives as it sits today. Far less olive trees than it would have had at the time. But um, this large building at the bottom is the Church of Mary Magdalene and there is a little path that runs next to it and you go through a garden 
which we call today the Garden of Gethsemane. These are about a 1,000 years old, these olive trees. And you come to a place which is half natural, half man-made, and it's a cave in the Mount of Olives. A grotto, it's called. And as early as one or 200 years after the time of Christ, there were Christian pilgrims who would travel and write stories about having visited this cave that had olive presses inside of it, a place called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And maybe this is the place, maybe not, we don't know. There are frescoes inside the the stories that the pilgrims write about going and visiting this place over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is that there were benches there, all the apparatus for oil press stuff was there, and gradually as more people visited, there was less stuff there because tourists are tourists everywhere, and everyone wants a souvenir. And so you can actually travel there, and you can visit this place today, and you can still see the place in the wall that was chipped out for a beam of wood to slide in, to lean down and to press on the olives, still exists there today. This is one of the other entrances. So there are two entrances, the the original one, which is where this kind of sits, and then there's another one. Why is this important? Because it helps us to get a picture in our mind of what was actually going on in that moment. This is a sacred space that Jesus returns to frequently. This is a space which is an intimate space for him and his mates to hang out and to actually sit and to do some one-on-one time with each other. We know that it's the middle of the night. We know that there is, for some reason, a dude who has turned up here who is just wearing a single linen garment. It's cold. It is unlikely that they would have been outdoors. Maybe they were, but it's unlikely. We find immediately after this that when Peter is going and when Jesus is is in the temple courts, Peter is warming himself by a fire. It was a cold night. This gives us some perspective as well because Jesus is sweating. Jesus is sweating. And whether it's sweat or the, the language that Luke here uses, sweat like drops of blood, we don't know. But this is what is going on in the moment before Jesus ceases to be traveling around on his own terms and Jesus actually goes from that state to being in the very hands of the enemy himself. This is the moment where it changes. And I want to draw to your attention what happens back here in the text. Have a look here, verse 4 and verse 5. Before we get to this point, we know that Jesus has gone out to pray, but this is not the number one thing that's in John's mind as John writes his account. John doesn't talk about the disciples falling asleep, maybe because John was asleep. We don't know. John doesn't talk about Judas turning up and going to kiss Jesus, maybe because where John happened to be standing, he didn't actually see that. We don't know. But the thing that sits in John's mind is that after everything that had happened, after Jesus had prayed, that when the enemy actually turns up, it says here in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out either from among the group or out of wherever it was they were. Jesus went out and asked them, who is it you want? 
Jesus already knows everything that's about to play out. Why is he asking the question? Who is it that you want? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And in the original language, Jesus says, I am. Which we know in scripture is the name that God uses for himself. He calls himself, I am. When Moses speaks to God about going to Pharaoh, and he says, who shall I say is sending me? God says to him, tell them I am has sent you. And here, after Jesus has been so burdened by this prayer, overwhelmed, he says, to the point of death, overwhelmed with sorrow, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He's on the ground. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Is there another way for this to happen? But if it's not your will, then Jesus turns back up, and when the enemy turns up, Jesus says, I am. There is no doubt in his mind of who he is, of what is about to happen, of what he has to do. And what's the effect here? Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am, or in the NIV, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Literally, they went backwards and fell over. John only uses this phrase three times when he writes. One is here. One is when he turns up after Lazarus has died and Mary falls to the ground. Another time is when Jesus tells the parable and he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. They fell to the ground. A detachment of Roman soldiers who were trained, who had their weapons with them, religious authorities who were educated, they came prepared, they had everything with them, and Jesus makes it very clear that he is not overpowered. If he is going to leave this place and go with them, he is going on his terms. And in the middle of that group of people is Judas himself, in whom is Satan, according to John's Gospel. And Jesus speaks to his face and says, I am. Jesus is very confronting. And I think sometimes it's good for us to be confronted with the enormity of who we are dealing with here. Jesus didn't have to speak at all. He could have just gone with them if he wanted to. But have a look at what he does in verse 8. I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. The same words which just came out of Jesus' mouth and knocked over a bunch of trained military professionals, Jesus has secured the safety for his disciples to be able to get away. Using nothing but the power of his voice. Same Jesus, same voice, and the words that come out of his mouth overpower and confront and literally skittle some people. And those same words provide safe passage for others, but Jesus is the same. What do we do with this? This has to apply to us somewhere. I don't believe it's just given, as Linda already talked about this morning, for us to go, oh, that's really cool. And then we let stuff just wander out of our brain throughout the rest of the day. I know you're busy. 
But let's just pause for a moment and let the Lord put his finger on something here for us. Jesus, as he prayed, was pressed down on by something, just like the olives. Jesus himself is about to go and be crushed. The words of Isaiah 53 come to mind. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I want you to read this in your Bible. He's about in the middle. And Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the servant of God who is going to turn up. It really starts back in 52. Let's go from 52 verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, like a baby born in a manger. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's not rich or powerful or influential. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Just put your thumb on that for a moment. You see, the pressure and the burden that Jesus felt as much as he was so aware of his impending torture and being scourged with a Roman flogging and being pierced and being cut and being spat upon and being debased and being belittled and eventually being crucified. As much as that was so present in his mind, there was something of greater value sitting on top of him. And the scriptures say it was your iniquities and transgressions. It was your sin. It was my sin. If sin was not on God's radar, Jesus would not have had to suffer. The punishment that he, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The beam across the top of the olives, if we're using that picture of Christ, the weight and the pressure of that is our iniquity. Dealing with your sin was far more important than Jesus getting out of the suffering and the torture that he was yet to endure. That was what he was holding on to, dealing with your sin and with my sin. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Get this, please. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Not my will, but yours, Jesus prays, because it is the will of God that Jesus would be crushed so that your sin could be dealt with, so that my sin could be dealt with. It is better for the very Son of God to be crucified than for your sin to continue being a barrier between you and God. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This snapshot, this moment that we have when Jesus is in the garden, this, we got to be so careful. I know our country changed some laws this last week. Some of you may notice. We have to be careful that when we are looking at how we define sin, we remember this moment very clearly because because if there are things in my life which which Scripture calls sin and I go, actually, no, that's not really important to God or that's not valuable or that doesn't get in the way of my walk with God or that's that's not contrary to what God says, then what I'm saying as those words come out of my mouth is, Jesus, why are you so upset? What's the burden? We've got to be really, really careful how we treat sin because when we minimize it, or when we say it's not valuable, that it's not of importance, that there is no weight to it, we are saying that Jesus, perhaps he didn't even need to come at all. It is dangerous territory when we start to minimize the sacrifice of Christ. What is better is for us to go, you know what? Sin is sin. Human brokenness is human brokenness. Do we struggle with it? Yes, we struggle with it. But it doesn't mean that Jesus should not have had to turn up to pay for it. We've got to be careful what we do with sin. When Jesus steps forward and he says, I am, and we believe Jesus is God from God and light from light, that's what we celebrate at Christmas his birth coming into the world. We celebrate at Easter his sufficiency, that he is enough 
to eternally and ultimately outweigh the burden of sin. These words that come out of Jesus' mouth are confronting words. And if you and I are going to represent Jesus faithfully, and my prayer for us in this age, in this country, is that we would faithfully represent Jesus in both his love and his holiness. When we faithfully represent Jesus, just like the words that came out of his mouth, the same message is hope and safety and security for some, and at the same time it is confronting and it is accusatory for others. The same good news about Jesus, in the same way that these words that came out of his mouth guaranteed safe passage for his disciples, it also skittled and knocked over a bunch of other people. And when we faithfully speak the message of Jesus to Aussies, in Kerrang, in this day and age, that same message for some people is going to become in them hope for salvation, that there is a meaning, there is a purpose. I'm not just a cosmic accident. There is a God. There is a point. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There is justice ultimately for everything that's gone wrong. God is good. God is loving. It's going to be that message for some people. And for other people, it's going to be the most confronting thing they've ever heard. You're not in charge. You are ultimately not in control. Your life is not your own. There is right. There is wrong. There is what is pleasing to God and there is what is sinful to God. We can't just do what we feel like. We can't say that we want God without turning our back on the world. It's the same message. So what do we do with this? How do we put this into practice this week? I encourage you, Christmas season is coming up, is here. 14 days, 15 days, 15 days. If this message needs to remain unchanged, even though we might use different words to communicate it or different methods like email and internet and all sorts of stuff. But if fundamentally the good news about Jesus Christ is the one message that will actually save people, then we need to get really, really good at actually sharing it. So let me give you an example. I'm going to share with Andy, and I want you to have a go at this this week, right? Andy, um, can I ask you an odd question? I know we've been mates for a while now. I'm actually looking for someone to read the Bible with, but I don't know if you'd be interested. Did you see just what happened there? I created an opportunity for someone to hear the message for themselves. Now, Andy might say, no, that's okay. He now knows that I'm interested. Here's another one, all right? Let's try this one. All right, Megan, I know it's Christmas. Um, I'm trying to get better at actually telling people what I think the real Christmas story is. Could I try that on you? <laughs> now, is my soul crushed that someone has said, eh, not really interested? No, because you know what? I'm going to try someone else. How do we do this? Do we think that this is only supposed to be done by professionals? Someone who's gone to a university and got a degree? Only those people can actually open this up and say, oh, yeah, let's read it. And you know what? If you sit down and you read this with someone and they go, oh, but what about this? And you go, yeah, I don't know. Write it down. 
Call me. I love having those conversations. Call one of the elders. Call one of the deacons. Call a Bible study leader. Hop online. There's a whole lot of weird stuff online. But I'll tell you what, it, it will raise more questions. But it's really easy. We sit together and we go, oh, can I just read this to you? I'm trying to understand this. I'm trying to understand this because I don't want to misrepresent Jesus. This message is a life-changing message. It is the message of hope to some and the message of absolute confrontation to others. Is Jesus worth it? Was his suffering worth it? I hope so. It's not a trick question. Because if my sin is part of that weight that was pressing down on him and if he has if he has done everything he has done so that I may be forgiven, then how on earth can I close my mouth and not share that with someone else? And you know what? If the person doesn't get the hope that's in it, it doesn't mean that the message has become hopeless. So let's share the hope that we have with people this Christmas. I'm going to pray, then we're going to do a song. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see you. Lord Jesus, we want to see you and we want to share you in a way that we don't screw up. Lord Jesus, we see so often around us in media and pop culture these different commentaries on who you are or what is valuable or important to you. But Lord, we want to see you for yourself. We want to know you as you are, as you desire to be known, as you have revealed yourself to be. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us and upon us, focusing our hearts and minds and illuminating the scriptures so that we can know you truly as you are. And then that it would not stop with us. Lord Jesus, that hope which you have put in us, would you help us to share that with other people? To let them know that that death is not a full stop, but a thoroughfare that you are bigger than death, you are bigger than meaninglessness and hopelessness because you are truth and you are life. You are hope. Lord Jesus, for those of us who are going to be traveling, please look after us and bring us home safe. Lord, for those of us who are about to tip into the extraordinary flurry of activities that happen at this time of year. Give us energy and wisdom to manage ourselves. And Lord Jesus, please create opportunities for us to share the hope that we have in you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thanks, Linda.